0: If this, if this were a rap album, the first one would be this beautifully woke piece of art, and then every single one after that is diss tracks.
1: I just want to know, like, is there going to be any bodies after this album has been released? You know, are, <laughs> are we going to find lightning floating, floating in the water, river, with, like, stab wounds to the neck? You know, oh, yeah. is Mosey going to turn up, oh, nailed to a tree outside, you know, his university?
2: Gee. <laughs> I mean I've been thinking drive bys man, but that's gruesome.
1: Hello and welcome to the tenth episode of the Refuting Marxist Inconsistency Capital and the TSSI series. This week we strive forward thrashing all that lies in the way of our understanding of chapter 8 of Andrew Clyman's Reclaiming Marx's Capital. This again turned out to be a rather long episode, so I've split it up into two parts. We discuss a couple of tables, which I've used as a graphic for this episode, for those who don't have the book to follow along with. Alternatively, you can also listen along to the unedited episode on YouTube, where you can see all the sections and tables under discussion. If you'd like to comment, please do so on the YouTube channel, as I try my best to respond to each and every one of them. Also, make sure to like, subscribe, and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. This week, I have two new Patreon subscribers to thank Turar and Zach P. If you'd like to participate in or vote on the book choice for the upcoming reading group series, you can do so by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 an episode. It looks like the Patreons are going to choose Mike McNair's revolutionary strategy. So, if that floats your boat, stay tuned. Okay, to the tables. Welcome to the 10th episode of the TSSI series, and we're looking at Andrew Klaiman's reclaiming Marx's capital, and we're on to chapter number eight. We have a reasonably full audience here tonight. We just had Alex drop off; he's gone into the chat to, to kick some ass. There, we've got Lexi. Hello, hello, hello. There's Lexi, and we also have Emmanuel and Aiden back from episode number one. Returning, uh, Aiden, what's been happening?
2: Uh, I finished my master's degree.
1: Are you actually smoking a pipe as well? Oh, yeah. Retro. Emmanuel, you're here with us today as well. Yay. This is Emmanuel uh,
0: trying to transform my value from doing this fucking show into Patreon money. Yeah. If Mark's so good at transforming.
1: How come we can't do that, huh? Right. Max, <laughs> Max may not have made a mistake, but we made a mistake in thinking that this would drive subscriptions to Patreon. Now, <laughs> okay. Last week, myself, and Emmanuel and Lexi did chapter seven, where we dealt with the falling rate of profit and the Kisho theorem. One part of it, which dealt with a melt, Lexi said that we actually were doing the transformation problem, which is kind of strictly not true. Today, we're actually going to get into it. Yeah. We're going to get into the transformation of prices and uh, values and prices in a multi-sector, three-sector economy over a couple of years. And it's going to be, I think, pretty damn groovy and... I found the table very head-expanding. But Emmanuel thinks this chapter is a whole load of rubbish. So we'll get through it anyway. And first of all, we're going to hit into here the significance of the transformation problem. So the transformation problem with respect to Marx and what people say the problem with Marx is, was basically that prices and values, that there was no way of transforming between the two and that Marx had an error. This error was first pointed out, I think, by Borkiewicz. This chapter basically goes through and shows how that's kind of a load of rubbish and that you can transform between prices. So um, when we say transform between prices and values, we're talking about situations where perhaps you have two industries and one of them might have some kind of a monopoly and it's able to siphon value away from another industry and jack up their prices. So Marx came up with a solution for how this happens using a labor theory of value, which was kind of a radical solution to a big problem that existed with Ricardian and Smithian classical economics beforehand. But people didn't like Marx's solution for one reason or another. And we're going to go through today and show that actually their critiques of it don't add up. Okay. Okay.
2: Just to defend myself, you can't, uh, can't do the transformation problem if you don't have a way of transforming prices and values. And that's what the melt was about. So when Fair I was enough, saying that we were in- dealing with the transformation problem last time, we're not dealing with it by name, but we're dealing with the prerequisites for dealing with it. All right, initial yeah. pedantry over. Let's sink yeah. our teeth into this.
1: I'm just going to quote this, this bit here when he's talking about the transformation problem. This alleged error is also the basis upon which the Marxist and Straussian critics claim that their simultaneous physicalist models are corrected versions of his account of the transformation problem rather than alternative accounts. Thus, the transformation controversy has a profound ideological significance, quite apart from the substantive theoretical issues at stake. Okay, one of the things is that the falling rate of profit gets ditched if you don't do the transformation problem the way Marx said, and that has got profound political implications. Okay, Marx's account of the transformation of values into price of production is the firm ground on which the long-term falling rate of profit rests. But if that account is not, in fact, firm ground, if, as a century of criticism has supposedly proved, it is logically invalid, so is the long-term falling rate of profit. So Um, what do you think about it? There is something about this
2: notion that bothers me a little bit, but I think it's it proves how strong the argument ends up being is that I don't think that a macro phenomenon like something like the falling rate of profit throughout, you know, an entire world economy. You know, in theory it shouldn't rely on a single set of, you know, micro explanations. In theory, you should be able to get that big result with different accounts of how the mechanism works. Why in theory? In theory, how do I put this? A priori, without investigating the actual uh, situation, I I think just as a scientific principle, macro phenomena are a little more empirically undeniable. And then the micro phenomena that people posit to explain the macro phenomena, you know, that can be, it can be, it's, it's a little harder to adjudicate. It's a little harder to, decide on what mechanism is actually operating in a macro phenomenon. If you have a bunch of different, or even just a few sets of micro phenomena that come to the same result. However, whenever people eliminate value theory, they can no longer reconstruct this result. There's no way to get back to this macro phenomenon. If you cut out the specific account that Marx gives, which means that if the phenomenon is there, then it suggests the micro-phenomena, the micro-explanation, is, is valid. Because we simply don't have another way to reconstruct this, apparently. And again, I'll, I'll point to the work of Robert Brenner. I respect him greatly. But the fact that he does so many little ad hoc things to try to come to this result, I think does have to do with the flaws in his analysis and the analysis of his entire generation. Just to defend the a thesis, a macro phenomenon that he he is trying to defend. You know? If you take away Marx's value theory, you, you really don't have a good way of reconstructing this.
0: I think the the, the one thing I, I would add to this is that the crux of this whole transformation thing is just as we went through when we did table 2.2. You guys remember when we said that even though the restaurant industry produced more value as per the labor theory of value and yet received almost no profit? Yes. Whereas the chemical industry that had very little living labor at all got a whole bunch of profit. And this was because the capital outlay, i.e. the capital investment in dollars was so so the 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 chemical industry was much more capital intensive and so they received more profits than the high labor intensive low investment industry that was part of like why people think marx's labor theory of value is bullshit because if Marx's labor theory of value holds, then, of course, the restaurant industry should receive the most profits. So in preparation for this, I, I read chapter 8, and I also read the chapter in volume 3 to which most of this pertains. And I think Marx had such a great quote here that I think sort of um, rhymes with what you what you just said, Lixie. Marx is saying this. He's saying, how could living labor be the sole source of profit in view of the fact that a reduction in the quantity of labor required for production appears not to exert any influence on profit? So in this case, like the the chemical industry, right? We have a reduction in the quantity of labor required and it actually boosted our profits, right? Moreover, it seems in certain circumstances to be the nearest source of an increase in profit, at least for the individual capitalist. What the capitalist and consequently also the political economists see is that part of the paid labor per piece of commodity changes with the productivity of labor and that the value of each piece also changes accordingly. What they do not see is that the same applies to unpaid labor contained in the very piece of the commodity. And this is perceived so much less, since the average profit is only accidentally determined by the unpaid labor absorbed in the sphere of the individual capitalist. So the individual capitalist in the restaurant industry is going to see that they're not getting that much profit, and yet they're performing labor, whereas the one who invests in the chemical industry where there is no labor is going to get a whole lot of profit and a great return on that investment. And so they're not going to see, there, there's no evidence for any, any labor theory of value being present at all here. And he goes on to say, it is only in such a crude and meaningless form that we can glimpse that the value of commodities is determined by the labor contained in them. Marx is actually saying that you know in the real world, the rate of profit uh, and how much you get back on your investment is it's the money talking baby and the actual living labor performed is not actually what's determining the actual real profits of real companies or real industries. But the way that we can glimpse in in such a sad way or, or a meaningless form, the only glimpse that we have is that increasing productivity, tends to lead to lower prices. That's our one little empirical fact that can lead us in the right direction. In Chapter 8, Kleiman is actually also talking about this, but I am not sure why he doesn't quote this because I think it's such a great Marx quote because he says it's where he talks about that the reason why Marx talks about value and labor time is because he wants to make a point about productivity and long-term trends in in prices and he says as i have noted when marx argued that productivity increases cause commodities values to fall this was his way of singling out changes in productivity as a key determinant of changes in real world prices that thing right there is sort of the golden nugget that both climate and marx really push on Keep reading. Here,
2: here, What, what is it? Um, one can, of course, dispense with the word value and still theorize the inverse relationship between prices and productivity. Yet, if one abandons Marx's concept of value in favor of physicalism, then, as we showed, one must also abandon the notion that productivity increases tend to rise with a rate of inflation. So, like, yeah, you can still do... So, this is, I think, perceptive. You can, you could do... You can do economic science just based on productivity and, and not really think about what's the, like a micro phenomenon of what's going on inside productivity. But you're going to miss some... Key determinant of price. Yeah, you're going to miss the ability to explain a bunch of things in economics you wouldn't, you otherwise wouldn't be able to. It would be a necessarily incomplete science. And that's, yeah, that's what I've been getting at with bourgeois economics. It can be scientific, but it's always going to be incomplete. It's always going to have this blind
1: spot. Yeah, it's just not going to be as good a theory, essentially. That's what we're getting at. Well, Bourgeois yeah. economics,
2: you know, from from abandoning value onward, I should say.
1: Um, let's read it because I like this part on the metaphysical critique. Another part of the answer is that value is not metaphysical in the sense that the critics mean. The distinction between value and price exists in real life. Whenever we ask whether we've gotten our money's worth or got a good value, we are asking whether the value of the thing we bought was not, in fact, less than the price we paid. But am I not resorting to clever wordplay? Doesn't the term value here mean, refer to utility, use value, rather than what Marx meant by value, something akin to but distinct from and regulative of price? To see that this is not the case, consider Marx's observation that the most ordinary merchant does not believe that he is getting the same value for his £1 when he receives one quarter of wheat for it in a period of famine and in a period of glut. You know, this is a pretty basic point. Even this ordinary merchant realizes that he has received more value in exchange for his one pound in a, in a period of famine and less value in a period of glut, even though he has received the same amount of wheat and the utility of the wheat is the same in both cases. Since the value of the wheat varies, Though its price and utility do not, it is clear that value is distinct from both price and utility.
0: That's a fucking bomb right there.
1: Yeah, you know, and if you leave out value as a scientific concept, you're going to end up with just a kind of a shittier theory. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There's a serious bong rip right after this, okay, right? Let's go bong rip like again after utility. So this this kind of blew me away a little bit, and maybe we can maybe, maybe I could talk about this. The paragraph right afterwards, one might perhaps argue that we only think of them, uh, uh, value, price, utility, as distinct, that the unobserved, quote, value exists only in our minds. Actually, Marx himself affirmed that value is a mental construct, but our mental constructs are part of the real world. We may base many of our actions on the value construct. For instance, when we buy items, if and only if they are as, quote, worth as much or more than they cost. Moreover, the mere fact that value is unobserved does not imply that value relations lack a constitutive or regulatory role. The nature, causes, and effects of this mental construct are thus worthy of theorization and explanation. So wh- what do we think he means by mental construct here? Because it seems to me calling value a mental construct is only true on a, like a, an abstraction level, but that, on a conceptual abstraction level. Because seems to me that the pressure that value exerts in the world is more than a mental construct. Like, of course, our concept of gravity is mental, but, you know, the thing that pulls you down
0: when you jump out of an airplane is not mental, right? Correct. That's what I gathered that, that he was saying. Tom, can you, can you bring up the footnote? Because Marx himself affirmed that value is a mental construct, footnote one. I found that actually to be pretty important. Basis of value is the fact that human beings relate to each other's labor as equal. This is an abstraction, just as you said, Lixie. Like all human thought and social relations only exists among human beings to the extent that they think and possess this power of abstraction from sensuous individuality and contingency, the kind of political economist who attacks the determination of value by labor time on the ground that the work performed by two individuals during the same time is not absolutely equal although in the same trade, doesn't even know that what distinguishes human social relations from a relation between animals? He is a beast. <laughs> as beasts, the same fellow then also has no difficulty in overlooking the fact that no two use values are absolutely identical, and even less difficulty in judging use values, which have no common measure whatever as exchange values according to the, to the degree of utility. So this is kind of confusing. I really but like this. The whole thing is, yeah. is Marx. He has a similar thing. So just to give you a background why my brain might be a bit fried and why I might be a bit hyper tonight. So I read fucking all of the economic philosophical manuscripts and Whoa. and chapter 9 of volume 3 and this fucking chapter today so my it's it's hard for me to keep apart where I read what. Yeah. But um <laughs> Marx does talk a lot about abstraction and equality and the difference between use value and value in the economic manuscripts of 1844, which I think this is what it refers to. And, and he also talks a lot about the differences between human beings and animals, what makes a man a man, that kind of thing. So basically the, 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 mere fact that, so value is a, is a mental construct. It's not a, you know, it's not an imagined thing. It's a real thing. You know, if I, if I'm shitty at making shoes, I still have to compete with someone who's good at making shoes and the value is still going to be same in the market, but it is an abstraction and it is something that we keep in our minds and it is an alienation from ourselves, right? It's, it's something that we observe it's objectively there. But we still have it in our minds, you know, comparing the products and fruits of our labor between us. You know, I'm going to get pissed that yeah. you um, you you can edit uh, uh, an episode about value theory in like an hour, and it takes me five hours. Like that gets you know, makes me pissed off. But that's the way it is. You know,
1: It's it me a lot process. longer than an Ooh, hour. It's Still real. Um, well, the bit, the thing I, I really went... liked about this relation was that he's saying, you know for those people who are saying that you cannot compare equate human labor they do equate the products of human labor you know two tins of paint that look identical they do equate in the market so he's saying like if we can equate the the products why can't we actually equate the labor it's a similar argument And and, and
0: labor is the only thing that we can equate because we cannot equate use values. No two use values are absolutely identical. If marginal utility was right, you know, this beer is worth more to me than it is to you, and sort of that's why we're exchanging products and that's where profit comes from. That that just cannot be the case because no, you you just can't compare use values. It's it's entirely it's unitless.
3: I think what Andrew's saying here. It's pretty much, hey, Hey. Tom, how's it going? (laughs) Sorry, I'm late. (laughs) I like took a nap and slept for too long. But, anyways, I I think what Andrew is saying is that, you know, all you see empirically is just price. You don't see value. And Marx is just using the concept of value to explain price. I think that's all that Andrew was saying there. I agree with that.
1: Okay, let's move along here to Marx's resolution of the classicist problem. So, we've talked about what that problem is already. And here he's saying that the classical school did not resolve this conundrum. And Marx solved it in a simple, straightforward manner. Okay, let's just read this bit here. The essence of his solution is that the total amount of profit in the economy is the same when prices adjust to equalize rates of profit as when they reflect commodities' actual values, i.e. the amounts of labor to produce them. So in volume one, they would be selling at their actual values. And he's saying that in the real world, actually, you know, we equate the profit rates between, or there's a tendency to equate these profit rates between the chemical industry and the restaurant industry. And But when we actually do that transformation, the rate of profit in the economy stays the same. The total profit is simply distributed differently. Accordingly, the total amount of sales revenue received throughout the economy, total price, is also unchanged, merely distributed differently in the two cases. Thus, although the law of value would seem to be falsified if we were to confine our attention to individual industries it holds true as a law pertaining to the aggregate economy okay Will we look at a table here because i think we'll just look at this simple table unless anybody has an objection Are we squeeze in the Marx quote before that okay go on here yeah. where the uh,
2: value form people you know just because um, we, we want to do math doesn't mean uh we don't appreciate the philosophical side of marx look at us appreciating
1: Hmm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this one here. Yeah, that one. In spite of great changes con- uh, occurring continually, as we shall see, in the actual rates of profit within the individual spheres of production, so i.e. individual firms, et cetera, any real change in the general rate of profit, unless brought about by way of an exception by extort, blah, 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 so unless something really weird occurs, is a belated effect of a series of fluctuations extending over very long periods. Fluctuations which require much time before consolidating and equalizing one another to bring about a change in the general rate of profit." Right. This is one of the reasons why I think people get confused with and, and, and claiming Marx is an equilibrium theorist. Which he's clearly not considering the rest of of, of this chapter. But anyway,
2: well, not so, the way that they understand equilibrium.
0: No, no, not at all. I, I'm 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 open to there being like other
2: ways of using equilibrium type math in like yeah. another way in Marx's theory because there there is a concept of equilibrium that he's going for, but it's certainly
0: not this one. Yeah, exactly. So. there are all sorts of firms competing with each other. And, you know, as soon as a new computer comes out, it's going to take some time before everyone adopts it. And even then everyone is not adopting it at the same time. Everyone is not when something new in productivity happens. That's not happening across all firms in one industry at exactly the same time is pretty much what he's saying. So They're they're going to equalize one one another to bring about a change in the rate of profit, and that takes a long ass time. But in all shorter periods, quite aside from fluctuation of market prices, that's actually an important parenthesis, but whatever. A change in the prices of production is therefore always traceable prima facie to actual changes in the value of commodities, right? a change in the prices of production is therefore always traceable to actual changes in the value of commodities, i.e. to changes in the total amount of labor time required for their production. Just just to make the point that Kleiman is not saying anything here that isn't already in stated expressly in uh, which I think is a, a good point to make because... We've taken Kleiman's word for granted uh, that he actually is the correct reader of Marx, but like he, here Marx says explicitly that a change in prices are always traceable to actual changes in the value. That was an important thing. And the tables are just there to show you that how that
1: happens. I really like this quote here. I think this is an important quote. The temporalist character of Marxist reasoning is striking. If profit is produced before outputs go to market, then competition, whether between lending institutions and other kinds of capitalist firms or between capitalists in different industries, cannot alter the total amount of profit that already exists. What's done is done. And that's quite important for the the idea of what what is the procedure. There is production. There is surplus created in production. And after the surplus is created, there's divvying up amongst these different capitalists as to who gets what. Okay. And that's the order of the thing. It's not like things get sold and then you figure out what the profit is. It's no, the, the surplus exists first. Okay. Yeah. Table. Here we have two branches of production, which have, they have the exact same uh, level of, of exploitation, rate of exploitation. But because there are different lumps of capital associated with them, branch one has a 20% rate of value, rate of profit. But when we equalize for our price of production, we get 25%. And branch two is 40%. And that reduces down to 25%. But the rate of value, total value, rate of profit is 25. And the total price of production rate of profit is 25% too. Before we started, you had a question about the sequence here.
3: And also, um, total price, price of production is equal to total value output, which is also important. That's one of Marx's equalities that are uh, maintained.
1: Yeah. And in this scenario, we have, I think, price and value is equal to one. There's a one-to-one ratio, so they will be actually the same number as well. There's no melt involved. You were going to talk here, Emmanuel, and explain. Just again, we'll go through the logical progression of what happens. So over to you, Emmanuel. Right. So this is
0: exactly the same progression as we had in table 2.2. 2. For all intents and purposes, this is exactly the same table. I have no idea why he brings it up again or why he doesn't just remind us of the table back in 2.2, 2, but whatever. The, the key things here is that we have some known quantities and we have some unknown quantities. And the key here is to figure out which is which because that is key to Marx's entire theory. In the last episode, we said that one of the problems with simultaneous evaluation is that the capital invested is not given, but is calculated. And turns out a lot of the beefs about Marx's theory and why some work and why some don't work is what is taken as a given and what needs to be derived. But it's clear from, and I'm not even going to say I think it's clear, because it is clear from chapter three that Marx, as well as Kleiman, take the capital advanced as a given. So we know how much cash we invested. And that's super important. So the total capital invested in branch one is 60, right? So we spend 54 on machinery and whatnot. Maybe this is our chemical industry, right? So super expensive machines, and we spend six on wages. So our total capital for that particular industry, the total investment is 60, say $60 million, right? That produces a surplus value from living labor of 12 a total value of 72 because we're assuming here that all the machinery that we buy they're going to transfer their all of their value in one year so there is you know every year we you know we have to replace their machines they're going to burn out all of their value will be transferred
3: I think Kleiman said in this example there's no fixed assets. So But that's his point.
0: There are no fixed assets, but there is constant capital. And that's that's one of the differences between fixed assets and and and, and constant capital. So but, but there is constant capital. There there are machines, they're just not they're Being just used not up in de- production. De- All right, cool. Let's go to the second industry. A lot more labor intensive, but less capital intensive. So maybe this is our restaurant industry. So sixteen million dollars of worth of equipment, a little less wages, but in relation to the machinery, it's much higher, right? Uh, as a percentage, so the total capital outlay, all the stuff that we pay for, is twenty, and they're going to produce a surplus value of eight million bucks, which means that twenty plus eight, the total value, of everything is twenty-eight. All right, cool. Now we add all of those up, and we get some neat totals. All of the invested capital in all of the industries, so wages plus machinery equals 80, so 70 plus 10, right? The surplus labor performed equals the total surplus labor performed across all industries is 20, which means that the whole shenanigans bang is 100. Oh, there's a hundred million dollars of value here in this economy being produced and being crystallized in, the, in these commodities. That means that we now know that the prices are also a hundred. Total prices, therefore have to be a hundred. We also know how much wages we've paid in each industry. so C is known. We also know how much we paid in wages, V. That's also known. S is also known since we know that it has to add up to 100. So that means that we can calculate our rate of surplus value, rate of profit in value terms. Our our value rate of profit in the low work intensive, high capital intensive industry, industry one, let's call that the chemical industry, is 20% because we gained 20 units of surplus value out of an investment by, with 60. So it's um, 12 divided by 60, which is 20%. And in our uh, high labor intensive, maybe bakery, we had an investment of just 20. So we didn't have to invest that much cash. We produced $8 million worth of extra value to this whole economy. So 8 divided by 20... That's 40%. All right. The economy-wide rate of profit is therefore 25%. So now we know that the price rate of profit also has to be 25% because they have to be equal, because total prices have to be equal to total value. Otherwise, nothing makes sense. And so once we know that the price rate of profit is 25%, these 25% tend to equalize over long periods of time in sort of the ideal world that we're examining here. Uh, so, so the amount we invested, uh, we, we we know how much we invested. And that's key. We know that we spent $60 million. That's known. And we know also now that the general rate of profit is 25%. That means that the pie is going to be 15. For the restaurant industry, it's going to be 5. The sequence here is entirely dependent on the capital outlay, the, the things we've actually paid are known quantities in price terms. And that is that is the transformation of values into prices. That's how it works. Okay.
1: Can I read this little bit here that kind of sums up what you've just said there? This is from Andrew said. It is important to stress that in keeping with Marx's solution, the sums of constant and variable capital And the surplus values are data. So this is what you're saying. We know these already. These aren't things we have to calculate. Specified at the start. The only derived magnitudes are the prices, the profits, and the price rates of profits. As we see below, this is a key difference between Marx's solution and his critics' corrections of it. So
0: There's there's another quote by, by Marx here that summarizes Kleiman's point. I think in a very articulate manner. And that also explains what's going on in this table. Again, in chapter nine. Therefore, the portion of the price of commodities which replaces the element of capital consumed in the production of these commodities, so the cost price, the portion, therefore, which uh, will have to be used to buy back these consumed capital values, i.e., their cost price. So, you know, we paid for the machines and for the wages with cash, we have to buy those back, depends entirely on the outlay of capital within the respective spheres of production, so within the different industries. But the other element of the price of commodities, the profit added to this cost price does not depend on the amount of profit produced in a given sphere of uh, production by a given capital in a given period of time. It depends on the mass of profit which falls as an average for any given period to each individual capital as an adequate part of the total social capital invested in social production. There you go. So the amount of capital outlay, the cost price, i.e. the cost for the wages and the machines is given. The profits received does not depend on... The, the profit or the surplus labor actually performed in this given industry, in this given period of time, it depends rather on the mass of profit, which falls as an average, hence the pi over uh, S plus V in Kleinman's table for any given period. Again, this, is, this harkens back to the whole temper. like Marx is super clear that his theory is, is, is temporal for any given period to each individual capital as an adequate part of the total social capital invested production.
1: The thinking for me that that makes this very elegant is that you assume a few small little things and as you do your little calculations depending on them, these three totals or aggregates fall out of the equation, fall out of it. Now, with some of the other solutions by simultaneous, they assume the aggregates and work back, and try and calculate what that means for different values of prices or price per unit. I think and capital value. So they're arbitrarily assuming some of these totals, where from Marx's point of view, those totals aggregates fall out of the stuff.
0: <clears throat> and they're and they're given.
1: Yeah, they fall out. They're the consequences of simple given totals. When we we could put it, Are you sharing a pipe with uh, Aiden. No, I, I, I have my own pipe. <laughs> oh my God, this is the most hipster thing I've ever uh, done. Eight of my own. A value, a value, a Marxist value theory series, be, and everybody's smoking pipes. My God, I'm never going to live this down. Uh, I mean, you know,
2: the, the classical way to enjoy Marxist uh, value theory It's over a pint or a pipe, obviously. And we're doing both, so... <laughs>
1: Well, here I am eating an orange and drinking, <laughs> and drinking a
2: glass of water. Blame. <laughs> lame, lame. I'm I'm also drinking Irish, water man. if it makes you feel better. So, it doesn't. So uh, so, it doesn't so feel
1: doesn't worse. Do <laughs> um,
0: um, b- before you read it, can I? Can I just? What, it's it's a super short sentence, and then I promise I'll shut up. But it, it's it's also just a, about why why it's correct to assume the capital outlay and not derive it. He says, the cost price of a commodity is always smaller than its value, for no matter how much the cost price of a commodity may differ from the value of the means of production consumed by it, this past mistake is immaterial to the capitalists. Because the capitalist actually paid whatever for the plumbus or the schlieb or whatnot. The actual value does not concern the capitalists. The cost price of a particular commodity is a definite condition, which is given and independent of the production of our capitalist. While the result of his production is a commodity containing surplus value, you know, the, the the cost prices are a given. The capitalist knows how much he spent on machinery and wages. And he knows, you know, that the servers he bought were really, you know, he really did spend a hundred bucks on them. There's no revaluation going on, there's no replacement cost things going on he knows you know if it if it and he doesn't give two shits about the actual value of the means of production that he bought you know and he doesn't give a shit about the labor theory of value even the cost price is uh is a definite condition which is given
1: there you go all
0: right okay all right I'm gonna shut up okay
1: now. okay we have it we have it in writing Emmanuel's gonna shut up right Now, Lexi, you read this bit. Yes. Oh, good. These are important.
2: Marx's three aggregate value price equalities follow immediately from his conception that competition leads to a different distribution of the surplus value without altering the total amount already produced. One, total profit equals total surplus value. Two, total price equals total value. Three, The aggregate, quote, price rate of profit equals the aggregate, quote, value rate of profit. In Marx's view, these aggregate equalities were immensely significant. They confirmed both the law of value and his theory that all profit has its origin in the exploitation of workers. So to quote Marx, the law of value is not affected by the fact that the equalization of profit gives rise to governing average prices for commodities that diverge from their individual values. This affects only the addition of surplus value to the various commodity prices. It does not abolish surplus value itself, nor the total value of commodities as the source of these various price components.
3: Wow, Um, that was wonderful. I think Andrew does a really good job of just summarizing volume three, I think it's chapter nine where um, mm. Marx does this. I think he does a great job of going over that.
2: I enjoyed popping back and forth between that chapter in, in uh, Capital 3 and and this chapter, because it's a, if, look, if nothing else, if Andrew is wrong like about this, Marx is also wrong about it.
1: Now here, we have this Berm-Waver c- critique, which we have actually talked about before. I don't know if we want to go into it here. Does anybody want to talk about this?
3: I know Emmanuel's kind of an expert on it because he
1: read the book. Lexi, if you have it, do it. Come on, let's go. Okay, I, I, I'm i interested in
2: this insofar as Bombavark has a critique with uh, Postone, Moish Postone, the uh, recently deceased RIP, sort of uh, Neumarkselectora theorist, or I, I don't know. This is interesting because, first of all, Samuelson apparently dismisses Bombavark and the special literature more or less ignores Bombavark from there which I think that's an interesting claim I think that's an interesting phenomenon because looking at this over and over again it's not really Borkovic but uh Bombavark that made a critique that I thought was like genuinely challenging as opposed to Borkovic knows that he's just changing marks you know what i mean and so what i really like about this is that Postone's response is clearly inadequate And you need to engage with something that Postone insists that Marx isn't really interested in. The best reason, really like a peripheral reason, but one of the better reasons to me that this matters, no matter what, who's interested in what, is that Postone kind of gets Baum like claim wrong.
3: Yeah, it's funny how Baum is still kind of popular in Austrian circles. I still hear him referenced pretty regularly, just...
1: Because they, yeah. they only have about three but... tierists. That's why. There's <laughs> Bon Barber, there's Mises, and there's Hayek, and, Hi- and then that's it. Yeah, that's true. Not even an they exaggeration. They have like
3: Rothbard,
1: I think. Oh, Rothbard. Yeah, yeah but they have a enough. few more. <laughs> Rothbard.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's Dindler.
1: Yeah. There's a thing here, actually. Before, we, if we're going to talk about what Bon was is saying, I think he was saying that at one place, Marx was saying... Commodities sell at their value, and then in Chapter Nine of Volume Three, he said they don't sell at their value, and he thought that this was a contradiction. Right, and that's so what Andrew is bar- claiming here. Yeah, that's,
0: yeah. That's, that's that's one part of it. It, it, it. It's it's the main part of it. There's a there's another thing too
1: about the total value equals total price is a tautology.
0: Yeah, that, uh, yeah. that one. Yeah, which is okay. Weird if you don't. Understand Bumbaverk's own sort of value theory, but uh, we can get into that. It's yeah, it's fucking it, no.
1: <laughs> oh, come on, okay, it's, that's interesting. Can you kind of put together what in English what Postone was saying? First of all, the important thing is that Postone is
2: doing this thing that I think is kind of fun where he's saying, Well, clearly Marx isn't interested in something that his theory ends up doing in that he's not st- interested in establishing cr- a critical political economy. He's simply making this critique. But I think inevitably when you're looking at Marx as a body of thought, you do have something kind of that calls for systematization that he leaves behind. And bon Bavark thinks that Marx affirmed and denies the proposition that prices diverge from values. In other words, that Marx had asserted that the proposition and its negation were only apparently contradictory. And that he had promised to substantiate that assertion, but he failed to do so. So I, I think that's a misreading of Marx. But what Poston thinks that Bonbavark is doing—it's really funny when I actually get to it. So first of all, Poston doesn't think he's refuting Bonbavark, but more importantly, he thinks he just doesn't understand that Bombavark thinks that Marx does both of these things. He doesn't actually understand Bonbavark. I, I can't actually find it. There's a few things about Postone's critique that I think is interesting, mostly in light of the experience that I've been having trying to get people to engage with Marx's value theory and just the conversations I've been having around the effort that we're putting forward in this podcast, you know, with a lot of Marxists, Marxists that are dedicated in Marxist politics, Marxists that are dedicated in historical materialism or, you know, in history, even people that, you know, spend a significant time in, you know, like uh, kind of hawking a Marxist worldview as a solution to a lot of problems. I had, I had a listener kind of say, this was a comment on the, on the webpage, sort of enough for me to understand the, the worldview and uh, to have read this. It's, it's enough. I don't have to get to the nitty gritty of this. But I think Kleiman ultimately has the right idea that without grasping the critiques being made here and just trying to look away from these problems and saying Marx wasn't trying to do that. He didn't care about that. He wasn't trying to do anything positive. It just basically refuses to deal with that if you're going to make a a, a critique of something, your critique, your objections have to hold up together. Like, (laughs) and Postone kind of thinks Bombalark is, I think just objecting to something that Marx affirmed instead of affirming and denying Okay, let's read these two paragraphs, okay. Even when Postone's discussion is read exclusively as a response to bon it fails to address his actual charge of contradiction. Postone emphasizes the importance of the distinction between essence and appearance to Marx's understanding of the value-price relationship. Marx wished to show that price is the form of appearance of an essence, namely value. Since appearances, quote, both express and veil the essence, express it in a distorted form, the, quote, divergence of prices from values should be understood as integral to, rather than a logical contradiction within, Marx's analysis. This is all true, I believe, but it completely misconstrues Bombalwerk's critique. He did not claim that Marx's analysis was logically contradictory because prices diverge from values. Rather, as we saw above, Bombalwerk claimed that it was logically contradictory because, in Volume 1, had both affirmed and denied the proposition that prices diverge from values. In other words, Marx had asserted that the proposition and its negation were only apparently contradictory, and he had promised to substantiate that assertion, but he failed to do so. So Postone is trying to kind of groove his way out of this problem and doesn't actually understand the objection. And Postone, I think, is doing something that Marxists want to do anyway, is not have to grapple with that part because that it's scary. Marx might've done something wrong there. And if he got some math wrong or something, maybe uh, our whole worldview doesn't make sense. So what if we just groove past that? And let's not like,
1: let's not deal with that. I I think what Postone says there is, is precisely correct about the essence and and, and value. But I think that what Andrew was saying is that that's not exactly what Bob was actually saying. Bob interpreted Marx as as having contradicted himself between volume one and volume three. Well, I think that's a a gross misreading. That's a very uncharitable reading of what Marx actually said.
2: Of course. And and Postone has a far superior
1: reading. uh, Postone has a far superior understanding of what Marx was doing, and he expressed it very well. But he doesn't precisely attack Bum kind of shoddy reading. That's Andrew's point, as far as I can make out. There's a reframing
2: of the point on the uh, top of 148. Putting the matter in philosophical terms, what is at issue is whether value is actually an essence that underlies price. baum in effect, claimed that it is not. Postone's critique fails to refute this claim since all he really tells us is that price differs from value. He says that this difference is a difference between appearance and essence, but that doesn't make it so. After all, price also differs from orange juice but that does not make orange juice an essence that underlies price. To show that value is indeed the essence of price, Postone would have, to, would have needed to show that Marx's understanding of the significance of the aggregate equalities was right, and that Pace Forkowitz and his successors, the aggregate value price equalities do hold true, but he simply ignores the issue. The crux of the problem, once again, is that Postone is discussing Marx's intentions and method when the point at issue is instead the
1: logical consistency of his arguments. Okay, that's pretty clear. Like, that's really good.
0: Uh, Kleinman has a passage here where he says something to the effect that a stone critique is basically that bum doesn't understand what Marx is getting at. He, he he has something, a sentence to that effect. But the problem isn't that bum didn't understand what Marx was getting at, although he didn't. That is, that is true. Barber da- Bo- Bo- Boer- 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 has specific objections that need to be addressed specifically, and that can't just be, as you said, Lexi, character- circumvented by saying, "Well, that's not really what Marx is getting at. Maybe he got the details wrong, but that's not that's not his point." And Kleiman is saying, "Well, it's not enough to show that it's not what he's getting at. It's like showing the steps of how he gets at what he's getting at is is crucial." To being able to actually argue for why Marx's conclusions are correct and the spirit of his argument, as it were. I'll just say this this, this one thing to try to reconstrue Bombarberg's critique in something that is maybe is a little more charitable than what Kleiman is presenting here, but it's still Kleiman's argument still holds. Is that Bombay is concerned? about the determination of prices right he's an empiricist empirically there are differences in prices between different commodities and he wants to know why commodity a has a higher price than commodity b marx in volume one does all of these good things and he actually kind of likes it in volume one, where Marx talks about ratios between different commodities. He's th- he thinks that is kind of good, but it doesn't explain prices yet. And he's saying that, you know, in, in volume one, Marx is saying that we have all of these different ratios between commodities, and and if prices were equal to values, then Bam work would have been satisfied. But Marx says, you know, Here's why part A has a higher value than commodity B. But he also says that values don't necessarily translate into prices. And that's what Babar wants to get at. And he's like, well, when, when the hell are you going to get to you know, the actual empirical evidence that we, we see in the market? And he goes to Capital Volume 3. And he's promised, uh, Marx has promised to show why product A also has a higher price than product B. And all Marx says in volume three is, well, you got to look at product A and product B in aggregate and then do all of this math with general rates of profit, etc., and and do all of this complicated stuff. And then you can arrive at different prices. And Bumbar kind of... He's he's unsatisfied by that because again he's he's an empiricist. He doesn't really buy this whole deductive argument thing. He wants to he wants Marx to get at his shtick. He wants Marx to to get to the point and wants Marx to say that here is my account of why a in the real world is more expensive in price terms than b, and all he does. When he finally gets to discussing prices is saying, well, if you add up all of the different prices and, and, and stuff, and Bam Barberk just, he just says, I will have none of that, basically. That's, that's, that's sort of the um, more charitable-ish reading of Bam Barberk, is that he, he likes when Marx talks about values because then he actually talks about differences in, in ratios and things. And that's all that Bam Barberk is interested in. But when he finally gets to price and the empirical stuff, he does all of this ag shit. (laughs) And Van Baerick says, you know, that's not what I'm interested in. What I wanted to show me is the price of A and the price of B, and that's why what a scientific theory should be able to show. He he wants he wants like the
2: micro prices. He wants like predictive theory of micro price. He wants determinative theory of micro price.
3: I think you can get a micro price theory out of Marx. I think the prices of production do explain them because then you just take the total price of the capital outlay for an individual industry and, and divide that by the units that are produced by that capital outlay, and then you get the unit price. Yeah, but that that exactly, and that's that's
0: what. But Marx you're assuming. Said. But, but Bambar, Bambar work is going to say that I I just don't buy it. You you promise to show us a determinant for an individual firm. You said that the reason why A is more expensive than B is because A had more labor in it. And now you're saying that you have to add up all of these aggregates and then calculate backwards in order to derive the price. But that's not what I wanted you to show me. He thinks that if you just do it empirically instead and you work from appearance and you work in an empiricist framework, then you can have a better more simple theory of price that doesn't require all of this value nonsense as he thinks it is.
3: I think Andrew at one point even said that, I mean, you could go through Marx's theory and just not use value. You know, because he said value was a mental construct. You could just you know, explain prices, you know, you, you don't have to reference value Productivity.
2: Yeah, we, yeah, we discussed yeah. that before. And, and I think that plugs into our, what we had been saying, about the third thing argument over the course of this. Um, th- there is, there's one single thing that I want to say about his uh, critique of Postone here. Then we should probably move on. Please. <clears throat> it's in the last, it's, it's in the last paragraph of 8.4 on 148. I suspect that the misplaced emphasis on intentions and method is due in part to the influence of relativism, within much of the humanities and social sciences. If our presuppositions fully determine the conclusions at which we arrive, as relativism holds, then the logic of our arguments is irrelevant. Presuppositions lead to conclusions directly, not through logical argument. If that were so, one could bypass the logic of Marx's arguments and acquit him of error by simply explaining where he was coming from. It seems like this is the methodology of Poisson's discussion. I don't mean to suggest he's a relativist. As uh, text indicates otherwise. My point is that simply if Postone had been working in a different milieu, he might have been more cognizant of the need to respond to the allegations that Marx's arguments are logically flawed. And footnote six, he delivers the sick burn. More precisely, reason is a sham. Presuppositions fully determine what is considered rational as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's a footnote. That is, I mean, yeah, that's a pretty, that's a sick burn to hide in a footnote. The, the, this is true, though. This is true. The, I, I think that the quality and the intentions of the intellectual milieu that these debates tend to be had in, <clears throat> and I don't just mean in academia, I mean in the way that a, a lot of autonomous intellectuals like approach these things. This is somehow corrupt. And, and it's, it's corrupt in the way that they want to make things immediately operational instead of appreciating what's there. Yeah, not all of this has a, a direct application right away.
1: On this episode you heard the theme tune The Order of the Phaeronic Jesters and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode from Alpha to Omega.